Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. The question for a lot of investors uh, yesterday uh, and today and, and going forward over the next several days certainly is, how will the uncertainty, the geopolitical uncertainty in Europe affect the global economic recovery? We're talking inflation, economic growth, and what does that mean for financial assets? Well, David Kudla joins us. He's a founder, CEO, and CIO of Mainstay Capital Management. David, has your outlook changed at all over the last 24 hours? It, it hasn't really changed from you know where we've been for the past <laughs> several months. And what I mean by that is you know we were – uh, we've been focused more. We're overweight value and cyclical stocks uh, for equity exposure. Uh, we are overweight commodities as a hedge, uh, and we're mostly void interest rate sensitive bonds. Now, with the geopolitical events, you know, we geopolitical events don't have a perpetual impact on markets. That's what history has shown. I think that this event is a little bit different because of the environment we're in with inflation and uh, what commodities could be impacted. That's even, whether they're impacted by sanctions or not, uh, they'll be, they're just impacted by the event itself. Uh, whether we're talking about uh, oil, gas, whether we're talking about agricultural commodities, fertilizer, Ukraine and Russia together supply 20% of the world's wheat and corn. Um, they're going to be in the Ukraine uh, recovery period. Uh, but we'll see what's yet to come on sanctions. They've been more symbolic. They've hit the financial institutions, but they really haven't gone after Russia's jugular yet and, and may not at all on where they make their money, which is hydrocarbons, fossil fuels. And and, and seems like they're making more than ever. We've seen um, that Russian sales of gas were up, I think, 25% today and 38% yesterday. So everyone's rushing to buy their products, even at much higher prices. Um it doesn't seem that just doesn't seem right, but I guess that's the way it goes sometimes. What do you expect the knock-on effects to be for the Fed? Anything at all? Well, the you know the Fed's uh, the Fed's fight coming into this is inflation is bringing inflation down. We got a PCE this morning at six point one percent, another you know another increase year over year. Um, we have you know I think the 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 Fed hoped that still that. Inflation comes down on its own. A supply chain's heal. Uh, you know, prices were high coming into this. They stand only to be higher uh, as, as we come out because of uh, where aluminum has skyrocketed to, where uh, wheat up 6% yesterday. You know, the, the impact of this geopolitical event will have some lasting impacts that stands to only increase inflation. And, you know, for the Fed... Uh, well, really what they're staring in the face of is stagflation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Paul has been asking or making the point for for weeks or months now that the Fed can't stop inflation caused by supply constraints. They can only slow demand with increased rates, right? So that means it, kind of the only choice is to slow down the economy um, to, to get inflation under control. Yeah, and we have, you know, we talk about these knock-on effects or what's going on with uh, 
you know, with prices going higher, especially when we talk about oil, that, you know, at one point Brent crude was approaching $105 per barrel. Per barrel. But, you know, uh, even before this geopolitical event, we were looking for oil gas prices to go even higher. Oil is a tax on the economy, and but it's also inflationary. So they're really between a rock and a hard place because there are forces there that are going to be slowing the economy and forces that seem to be uh, continuing to ramp inflation higher, much higher than where the Fed expected, and, and probably a lot of others as well. So we're we're seeing these forecasts for how many rate hikes we get this year. You know, they've been all over the map this week. Each day is is to what was happening in the conflict in Ukraine. So, David, what what are your clients asking you most? You know, over the last few days, what's the big question they have? What this geopolitical event means to the market. It, I think it's typical, uh, as much as you educate your clients, talk about these things. We sent out a communication uh, on Tuesday morning specifically about, uh, you know, what Ukraine, Ukraine going on in Ukraine and what it means to the markets, what it means to their portfolios. But, you know, there's still that 24-hour news cycle. Um, they're hearing the concerns about uh, what could happen. And, you know, we've seen, you know, leaders around the world, specifically in the EU and U.S., uh, who have been trying to get gas and oil anywhere they can, and uh, they are not in, I think, in terms of sanctions, not going to put those supplies at risk because they're concerned about domestic policy. Yep. So, I, you know, the, the concern is they see higher inflation. They hear the, the, the discussions about slower growth. And, you know, right. that, that's that's uh, obviously a, a good discussion to have to yep. put them at ease about what we're doing. All right, David. Thank you so much for joining us uh, once again. We always appreciate getting your perspective on these markets. David Kudla, founder, CEO and CIO of Mainstay Capital Management. Okay, we're, yeah, let's call it 24, 36 hours into uh, this news cycle with uh, Russia invading Ukraine. It seems like something out of the 20th century adjacent born, but here we are nevertheless. Markets very volatile yesterday, took a big sell-off as one would expect, but then in the afternoon really came back with a vengeance and closed uh, on the upside, and we've got some more green on the screen today. But how do you factor in geopolitical risks uh, into your investing, particularly if you're a tech investor? And for that, we check in with Lauren Hine, head of advisor relations at Robo Global. Lauren, thanks so much for taking the time here. Um, has the last 24 hours changed the way you guys think about these markets? Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely not. We don't make decisions um, about kind of the long-term outlook for innovation based on market swings. I mean, frankly, if anything, the last 24 hours in the last, I guess, month or two have given our investors a good opportunity to kind of buy in at, at lower prices. So there's long-term opportunity for us. Uh Whenever we have these kind of geopolitical hits, um, do you is that the first thought after obviously the human uh, issues that we're all concerned about? Um, when you mm -hmm. look at the markets, do you think this um, is going to cause volatility that is going to give us a chance to get in? Um, that's very much I think where our our mindset is and our investors' mindset is. I mean, Robo Global specializes in investing in things like robotics and automation and. You know, despite what's happening in the geopolitical landscape, there will be more automation. There will be more innovation, more robotics application cross-sector over the next, you know, 12 
months over the next 35, 10 years. So a 24-hour um, kind of geopolitical news cycle isn't going to really affect the trajectory well, of technology. And this this leads me to another question. Paul and I were talking to um, uh, a guy who runs a tech company uh, recently, and he specialized in logistics. And we asked him, you know, it, it, does this present a problem, Russia invading Ukraine for the global supply chain? And he said, actually, the economies are pretty insular and not really. Do you see it the same way? Um, I mean, honestly, it's not something that we've raised a lot of red flags about here in the last day. We're obviously, when we're watching logistics, we're watching supply chain and factory automation regardless. It's something we're very optimistic and excited about for the future, something that, frankly, technology can really solve some serious problems. But it's not nothing being affected by Russia that we're talking about right now. Lauren, 5G, that's something that we've heard a lot about, I'm going to say over the last 18 months or so. How do you guys think about 5G and maybe how are you guys trying to get some exposure to that? Sure. Honestly, we're not trying to get a, a pure play exposure to 5G through any of our indexes or any of our kind of underlying technology funds that we're, we're creating. Um, as far as the 5G network itself, we know that we need it. We need a faster network with more capacity. Um, for any of our technologies to run. So what will be crucial in kind of the next, the new economy, but it's not something that we're actively trying to get exposure to. I think we're specialists on kind of the ecosystem of automation more than on the um, the infrastructure technology space. All right, Lauren, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate getting Dude, your Dude, we thoughts. didn't get to ask her at all about softball. Oh, all right, let's talk I mean, softball. I know, there's, a, I know there's, a, there's a lot of serious stuff going on, and we come to you, Lauren, for real market knowledge, and you're great at that. But you also played varsity um, softball at Wheaton. What position? Um, I spent my time in left field, and you guys are making me think I need to get someone on my Google and really start scrubbing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking it, it just That's seems cool. like so much fun. And it's Friday, and there's yeah. no reason yeah. uh, that we, we shouldn't mention. Fun. I mean, how great is – intercollegiate softball yeah absolutely Guys, college sports are wonderful softball is a fast game it's fun to watch it's fun to play and frankly the discipline and the team atmosphere is a great skill set for kind of the rest of your life especially in a fast-paced environment like working with the markets so that's it can't endorse it enough i think All it's right. growing, and growing every time we talk to you lauren well. we're going to bring it up we're going to talk some softball lauren hyde head <laughs> of advisor relations at robo global this is The Big Take, the best of Bloomberg's in-depth original reporting from around the globe. We're running on a financial system that's running on old technology. We're seeing house prices reach fresh record highs. What unfolds in midterms, we will no doubt see again in the next presidential election. The Big Take on Bloomberg Radio. All right, the Big Take story today really focuses on economics, macroeconomics on a global scale. And the question is, how the unfolding war in Europe could threaten the global economic recovery from the pandemic. Let's check in with Tom Orlick, chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. Uh, he joins us here on the phone. Tom, so give us a sense of kind of what you and your colleagues are thinking about this continued global economic recovery post-pandemic and, and how it may be impacted by the events we're seeing in Russia and Ukraine. So there's three channels which we see for impact from Ukraine to the rest of the world. The first is spillovers from Russian sanctions, Russian recession to Europe. That's a drag on exports for Europe, especially for the Eastern European countries, which are most closely um, have the closest trade links with Russia. 
The second is what happens to energy prices. Now, the big concern here is that Russian supplies of gas to Europe get affected. We see spiking European gas prices, global oil prices. That hits consumer spending power at the same time as pushing inflation higher. And the third channel, well, that's the financial market channel. We've not seen it so far. Energy prices have stabilized. Equity markets have stabilized. But clearly, in a geopolitical conflict, in a war, there's the chance of a sustained risk-off move for markets. If that happens, we see another drag on growth. Potentially, we see a more dovish trajectory for the Fed heading into the second half of the year. Tom, how bad would it be um, for the European continental economy to stop buying gas, oil, and aluminum from Russia? I mean, surely the prices would go higher. A lot of shortages would be would pop up, making life more difficult. But would it be um, a, a huge problem for growth? It would be a very significant problem for growth. And, and this is the kind of the dilemma for Europe's leaders. On the one hand, they want to signal to Putin that this behavior is completely unacceptable. Well, stop funding uh, on it. On the other hand, stop funding it would the be a other good hand, thing to do, right? Well, exactly. On the other hand, turning off gas imports from Russia, uh, which would really be the sort of the maximum pain point for Putin, would also impose very high costs um, on Europe. We'd see inflation going higher. We'd see consumer spending power going down, likely we'd see Europe going into at least a mild downturn, if not an outright recession. So far, European leaders have been very, very reluctant to pay that price. And that's why we're seeing sanctions that hit banks, that hit corporates, that stop but stop short of hitting Russia's energy sector. I guess the question therein is what needs to occur for for the United States and its Western allies to take that step, Tom, to really go after the energy complex, which, as you point out, will have you know repercussions for certainly Europeans and you know probably even more than that. Well, they've got to decide it's worth it, right? Yeah, exactly. At the moment, they don't think it's worth it. It's not yep. worth the, the injury to our own economy to to stop funding Vladimir Putin's uh, invasion of other countries. So, Tom, is there any yeah. scenario where, where you see that happening? So, I, mean, I think one crucial point here. Um, is that Ukraine is not a member of NATO, yep. right? Um, and so the obligation to put boots on the ground um, and to get really serious about defense of the democracy there uh, is not nearly as strong as it would be if they were a NATO member. So I'm an economist. I'm not a, you know, an international <laughs> relations expert. Sure. Uh, but I think it's the NATO membership question uh, which is crucial there. Um, and if you saw Putin's ambitions stretching to countries that are members of NATO, that's when things get really serious in terms of sanctions, in terms of military support. That's when you'd start to really be concerned about the gas being turned off for Europe. If they went to the Baltics, for example. Um, we have seen, you know, during the Reagan administration, as the Cold War was at its you know, peak, um, Military spending was massive, and so was economic growth. Is that is that a possibility if this if this escalates? So, the end of the Cold War hasn't played out quite as hoped, right? Um, if you go back to the 1990s, there was this kind of 
triumphalist view that democracy and free markets and the West were in the ascendancy and Russia was going to move on to that path and maybe even China was going to move on to that path. And that's why you had this very optimistic period in the early 2000s uh, where China was coming into the global economy and right. Russia seemed to be on a reforming path and globalization was driving growth for everybody. Well, COVID, U.S.-China trade wars, neither war in the Ukraine, yep. it seems we've moved decisively off that trajectory. Yeah. Deglobalization, maybe not, but certainly right. slower globalization going forward. Yep. All right, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Tom Orlick, Chief Economist for Bloomberg Economics. Well, today, President Biden uh, selected a nominee for the Supreme Court, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, uh, the first black woman nominee to the Supreme uh, Court. Um, what does it mean? And how is this going to go? How's the whole process going to work? Can this person get a uh, Approved June Grasso, host of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Opinion. It's Grasso. I got to say, Grasso. it's Grasso. What did I say? You no, know, this is important to people. How you pronounce their name? June Grasso. Oh, what did we I just say, had Matt? This conversation. And by the way, okay. you said Grasso, like like Dick Grasso. Remember? So, but it's Grasso with June. Ah, uh, you're going out. with the soft A. Yes, soft A. Soft June A. a. I wouldn't have stopped you though, but. But Matt did. Matt so, does. You know he, has Matt. No, he has no. Yeah, he doesn't worry well, about that listen, kind of stuff. Well, listen, June. I used to uh, drive home at the same time as June had her show every day. She had a great legal show on Bloomberg Radio yep. with Michael Best. I listened to it every day. I loved it. Um, she went to Wellesley, which I think is amazing. Uh, I've dated That's a couple of women from Wellesley. <laughs> And uh, law degree from Harvard. She's an Emmy Award winner. So she's kind of a big deal. You and yet I wasn't nominated to the Supreme Court. What, no. what happened? <laughs> Tell us about the nominee. All right. She is a star, Katanji Brown-Jackson. She's been on the bench for nearly a decade. She has the Ivy League credentials, Harvard College, Harvard Law School. She clerked for Breyer, who she's going to replace. And she's got a different kind of background in that she served as a federal public defender. The last Supreme Court justice with significant public defender uh, or significant experience representing criminal defendants was Thurgood Marshall, the legendary civil rights lawyer. Mm. And she has been considered a contender for quite a while. President Obama not actually did an interview with her when a seat came open that he gave to uh, Merrick Garland. We know how that turned out. Hmm. But she, she's just a star. June, do you, do you think she'll get approved? Oh, I I definitely think she'll get approved. Okay. When she went, when she, the question is, how nasty will the nomination process be? I mean, the nomination process has been for the last few nominees since contentious, Garland, right? Since since Garland. Yeah. I well, yeah. Garland never got a never even got a no, hearing. No, right. I mean, that's right. when it all kind of kicked yes, off. Yes. Yeah. It it was getting it was a little bit before that, but it, it's gotten so contentious and awful. But she just not a year ago, less than a year ago, went through the confirmation process for the D.C. Circuit, which is sort of the feeder court to the okay. Supreme Court, and she sailed she sailed through that. Basically, uh, there were three Republicans that voted with her, uh, for her. That was out of the committee. That was Lindsey Graham, uh, Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski. But, you know, the Supreme Court is a different – the Supreme Court nominations and hearings are different, so mm -hmm. we don't know if she'll get those particular votes. But the Republicans really don't have a coherent strategy or reason to attack her. So, you know, the – the questioning we heard from Republicans during that hearing was about, you know, 
wonky sort of sentencing guidelines and the fact that she had represented as a public defender a Guantanamo Bay inmate that was probably the the most they had on her and her you know also she's ruled in a lot of high profile cases but not in cases involving those hot button issues like abortion or guns or religious rights the highest profile you have to think about is the Don McGahn case where she famously said presidents are not kings about Donald Trump so so, assuming she gets confirmed, June, what does the Supreme Court look like then? So, the ideological makeup of the court won't change. It'll still be six conservatives and three liberals. But hmm. those three liberals will be women. It's going to be an all-women block. <laughs> and also with diversity of their own, Hispanic, Jewish, and black. It's going to be, I think, really something to see because those three women are going to be able to talk about some of the issues. And particularly with her background, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, in some of the cases that come forward, for example, they're going to be an attack on affirmative action coming up next term. And the only other black on the court, Clarence Thomas, is not a fan of affirmative action. So we'll see how she relates in that case and, and what happens. I just expect that they're really going to be spectacular. They're All three are so well-spoken and really um, sort of, they're, you know, you, can, they're, they, you have sound bites from them. If you ever listen, if you're wonky enough to listen to Supreme Court arguments, <laughs> you'll, you can, you know, you sort of see the, the justices that have like what, what I'd call a sound bite that say things that just resonate. And Elena Kagan and Sotomayor certainly have that. And I expect that Katanji Brown Jackson will as well. By the way, how uh, do, do judges' ideological leanings stay the same because their careers are so long right, right. and they i know don't. reagan for example appointed a few federal court judges who turned extremely liberal in the end right and so that's definitely true you have certain justices who turn with david Souter is a great example of a justice that they thought was going to be moderate to conservative and turned out to be moderate to liberal liberal so but the thing is that in order to prevent that from happening a in the future what's being done now is they're vetting these candidates more closely and they're looking for right. a, a background a history of conservatism so that it will be unusual or, or liberalism or liberalism right. right so that it'll be unusual for them to all of a sudden make a, a term but gradually it could happen and also there are some cases where you don't expect yep. a you know, a ruling, and all of a sudden, for example, in the in the ruling about um, right. uh, transgender, uh, you know, being able to get a job and yep. the violation, we had Gorsuch writing that majority opinion, kind of which was a surprise. Okay. June, thank you so much for breaking it down for us. June Grasso, host of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Opinion for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.